Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So good evening, everyone. Hi, welcome. My name is Carla Thorson. I'm the Vice President for Programs here at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm delighted to welcome everyone to our program tonight on the business case for second chance hiring. And I want to say thank you to both the Checker Foundation and the RM Lowe Foundation for providing support for tonight's program. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Korzenik and Ken Oliver to the stage tonight. Hello, everyone. My name is Ken Oliver, and I'm very pleased to be here tonight with my good friend and colleague, Jeffrey Korzenik, who I know well. Um, we both, for very different reasons, uh, share a passion for what we call second chance or fair chance hiring uh, in our circles, uh, which focuses on the more than 77 million Americans have some form of a criminal record in this country. Um, it's a subject I know well, as the moderator said, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, the Checker Foundation, before we start, and the RM Lowe Foundation, Roger Lowe, a good friend of mine too, have provided support for this program here tonight, and we thank you for being here <clears throat> um, to talk about how we build a fair future of work with fair chance hiring. So thank you for being here. Um, as the moderator mentioned too, I'm the VP of Checker.org, Checker's Corporate Social Re Responsibility Division, and also the Executive Director of the Checker Foundation. And we run one of the country's most important initiatives around fair chance hiring and how do we provide people with criminal records in this country um, or arrest records with access to the tech and knowledge-based economy and to the future of work that's equitable for everybody. My own journey, I'll start out with, uh, didn't arrive here in, in conventional means, um, and perhaps rightfully so. Uh, a little more than three years ago, I was serving my 24th year of a 50-year-to-life prison sentence in the California prison system. I spent more than eight of those years in solitary confinement for reading a book about the Black Panther Party written by George Jackson, and with the incredible support and muscle of corporate law firm Mayor Brown and hopefully a friend of mine, Ward Johnson, who's here, um, and Stanford University, uh, I filed and won a civil rights lawsuit against the state and as a result was released um, from prison in 2019. What's interesting is about the barriers that I faced once I got out after serving that much time. They were almost, in my mind, insurmountable. They were daunting. Um, just to provide context, there are currently more than 48,000 laws in the United States that prevent people from reintegrating into, the, into society to access things like employment, housing, social services, occupational licensing, etc. But luckily for me, I was hired by a public interest law firm as a paralegal and shortly thereafter as a state policy director, where I was involved in working with tech companies in San, here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley to talk about how to provide access for people who had been involved in the criminal justice system into the tech sector. Um, and how do we build a fair future of work along the way in doing that? I had the privilege of advising on the governor's future of work panel, um, which ultimately led to a $28.5 million investment from the governor and the California state legislature to fund a nonprofit that I led to build a residentially based tech training program um, for justice involved men and women in the state of California. And it was during the run-up of that investment that I had the amazing opportunity to work with Checker, a San Francisco-based company, innovative tech company that specializes in background checks and other HR tech services. And what I learned was, is incredibly enough, that Checker had, uh, as their company mission, fair chance hiring long before it became known in this country or became popular to talk about. Um, and in 2021, they took the 1% pledge started by Salesforce um, in Atlassian, where they committed 1% of their equity, 1% of their profits, 1% of their product, and 1% of their volunteer time to build in a fair future of work that was equ equitable and inclusive for everybody. 
What's perhaps more amazing about Checker and its founder, Daniel Yanis, is that they really wanted to bring in proximate leadership who understood the landscape of the problem of the criminal justice system in this country. And they wanted to hear and have as a leader a person who could provide solutions from an inside uh, standpoint, somebody with lived experience. And so kudos to Daniel and to Checker for having the vision to find people who were proximate to the problem and then believing in their leadership to lead away um, to advise not only Checker, but other companies as well to advance these initiatives. So thank you to Checker. Uh, but tonight is not about me. It's about my good friend, Jeffrey, um, who has written this amazing book. He's a chief investment strategist at one of the biggest banks in America and someone who understands the business case for fair chance hiring, particularly right now in this, in this economy. He is also the author of this amazing book, Untapped Talent, which I had an opportunity to read before it was even published a little bit over a year ago. Um, that talks about how second chance hiring works for your business and for your community. And I, as, as I understand it, that book is available tonight outside of this room. And Jeff will be signing the book after the program. Right, Jeff? I will. I appreciate that. And, uh, and can I say how much I love after your just impressive journey when it comes to my bio, I get to say I'm a banker. <laughs> a very good banker who's involved. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your journey into second chance hiring because it's kind of counterintuitive that you would be involved in, in something um, like second chance hiring for people who've been to prison and for people who've suffered a criminal uh, conviction in, the, in their past. Um, as you know, this is a critical time to be having this conversation and we need to be having more conversations like this. And I think we're starting to have some more of these conversations. You and I have had these conversations before. Um, but before jumping into this conversation, I want to have a quick reminder. If you're here in the audience and have a question for Jeff or I, please fill out the question cards and those questions we brought to the stage during the program. If you are watching the program virtually, please put questions in the YouTube chat and questions there will be transcribed and brought to me on stage as well. Okay, so let's jump in the conversation. The first question I want to ask you, Jeffrey, is why is this such a critical time today for this conversation about fair chance hiring? Yeah, there are a number of answers to that. And I think on a societal level, uh, we all feel some of the things that are holding us together as a society are fraying. And there has been a widespread recognition that our justice system is neither delivering uh, justice nor safety, nor prosperity. So there is a missing link. We've been at justice reform for a long time, but we've been missing, frankly, the business community and the importance of bringing in the business community to this discussion. It's also now in the self-interest of the business community. And I think that's a, a real something I, I like to stress. This is not an act of charity. This is good business and uh, pro-economic growth. Because we have uh, two things at work. One, we have a societal recognition that business can play a greater role than simply generating profits for, for shareholders. Employees, particularly uh, younger millennial and Gen Z employees, expect that of the companies. Consumers expect that. So it's important that businesses be involved in societal issues. But it's critical for businesses to look at this enormous population. You cited the 77 million number. I focus often on the 19 million with felony convictions and bring them into the economy or those who are ready and able because we have a labor shortage that's not going away. Uh, just to give some numbers, because I'm an economist, so I like numbers. Uh, we have roughly 10 million job openings in the United States and about 6 million job seekers. We've never had a gap of that magnitude. And when you can't get enough workers, you can't grow your business, you can't grow your economy. And right now, if nothing changes, according to estimates from, say, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, our future growth path of the United States is well below 2%. And the answer has to lie in reaching into those who have been sidelined and not just offering them employment, but also offering them the opportunity to contribute to the greatest degree of their, of, of their capability, which means not just low-level entry jobs, but giving them the opportunity for, as you promote, say, the tech economy, the knowledge-based economy, um, that is going to be a key component of our working out of this slow growth environment. Thank you for that. I'm really curious about something you said about the labor shortage. Can you talk a little bit about some of the key indicators of why we're in this labor shortage in the first place and, and why you say that may not be getting better in the future? The fundamental problem is one that on the surface is intractable. We stopped having enough babies 20, 30 years ago. 
And it's really hard to make up for that when you start losing the baby boom generation, when they start retiring. The pandemic accelerated a trend that was in place already. Uh, the the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank did a study. They estimated by uh, October of last year already 2.4 million older Americans had retired earlier than expected, in addition to the roughly 10,000 people a day, baby boomer retirements. So what was a gradual problem that we might have been able to adjust to has become a very, very sudden problem. Then you have to say, what can we do about it? And, and who's missing from the labor force? And it turns out we're missing a lot of people from the labor force. And the primary reason compared to, say, international uh, benchmarks, the primary reason that we're missing people has been social ills. Social ills in the, of this century have been of such a magnitude that they're actually macroeconomic problems. Long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, and justice impact and the, and the barriers that justice impact creates. So addressing social ills is no longer just sort of a societal good, and it is a good. I mean, there's, I don't deny that, but it's also something where we have a self-interest, economic self-interest in addressing these problems. Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting perspective. And, and it's a perspective that when I first met you, I wanted to ask you about why um, we should be interested in a banker and what business do you have to come into the reentry space, the workforce space, and talk about people who are just as impacted being involved in the future of work. Why should you be the person talking about this? And why are you the person talking about this, Jeffrey? Because so far, I, yeah, I, I, I surprise a lot of people being a banker. I work for a 160-year-old conservative Midwest-based uh, bank. Uh, but to me, this is about helping the companies we bank find the talent they need and helping the communities in which we serve be more prosperous and safer. You know, what, what better role for a banker? Um, but specifically, I, I found myself in an unusual, unusual situation in that um, I saw the problem, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I felt that I could serve our customers and our communities by sharing this knowledge. I also found that I was unusually well-positioned, because if you look at the cities where you see really great examples in the business community, you know, for-profit, not social enterprises, these are traditional businesses where the leader of the business has taken on this initial experiment and, and, and very successful experiment in, in reaching to this population for their talent pool, they happen to be disproportionately located where my bank does business. And so um, I think it's a great role for a banker, but it became a particularly important role f for me to share because I was better positioned because of where we, where I had contacts, where I was able to find these employers and share their models of success. That, that brings up an interesting point because you're from the business sector. Traditionally, this type of work is relegated to the government, relegated to nonprofit organizations who do social service work in the communities. Why are you advocating that this is a business problem and why should businesses across America focus on solving what you deemed earlier so, uh, this type of social ill or the affect of the social ill? I, I think at the heart of it, because we can't solve it without the business com community. Um, we know of, of the many things that are required for successful rehabilitation, which means more prosperous families, and communities, and more prosperous uh, neighborhoods. Um, ultimately, people need to have a job. It's not the only thing that has to happen. It's more than just a job, but the job employment is foundational to rehabilitation. And most employment in this country is done by the private sector. So the business community has to step up because only we can. But also, again, I keep coming back to it's in our interest to do so. Absolutely. I mean, I often tell people, and I'm sure you've heard, heard it said before, that incarceration and locking people up isn't good for business because that's less people that are spending money with you and working for you, right? Right. Um, and, it, and it takes a big dip in the communities when you have that type of ripple effect that happens in people's families. Um, they lose first income providers and all the rest of that. And just, it's just not good for business. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I, you know, I was here in, in San Francisco earlier and you see, you know, I was in a store, a, a, a Target and filled with uh, employees who are there to watch against theft 
that's an extra cost that puts a burden on higher prices or hurts profitability. Um, none of this is good for business. To the degree you can say that the business community wants something, we want everyone to be a really good consumer, which means earning a lot of money. And we want people to be great employees and have the capacity to be great employees. It's just breaking down those barriers that stand in the way of the business community looking at this population, the justice-impacted population, and saying, aha, here's a great talent pool. Absolutely. I think it's important to point out, too, and I, and, and I love to point this out, that we, we often misunderstand what drives mass incarceration and recidivism. And when you look at the numbers and you look at the studies, it's, it's primarily poverty. And it's an age-old problem. If you give someone a livable wage job and you take them out of poverty, chances are they're not hanging out in the streets looking to get into mischief because they have a sustainable income where they could provide for themselves. And it's become intergenerational. One of the best indicators of whether a child will ultimately go to prison is if they've had a parent in prison. Right. And what I try to stress to CEOs when they try to ask, how can you have communities that are so, where justice impact is so embedded, you know, I say, how did you learn how to be a good employee? How did you learn to dress appropriately? And invariably, dress appropriately, show up on time, handle conflict with a supervisor, all the things that are just part of everyday life as an employee. If you've never seen that in your family, it's really hard to know how to navigate that. And so it doesn't mean that the population of our you know, friends and neighbors who have a, uh, had justice impact doesn't mean they're not capable of being great employees. It's just they might need some coaching provided that they never had as a child. Well, one of the things that, that you mention all the time, and I've had the privilege of hearing, I'd love for you to share with the audience, is we often talk about whether this is a heart-centered initiative. And you're, you know, you're very sympathetic to the big-hearted views politically and everything else. But you often make a point of saying that this isn't a charity case. Right. Right. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and, and what your perspective so, is? So there are two reasons. One is just strategic. If I'm talking, if I start with the ethical issue, and I certainly believe it, but if I start with the ethical issue, I think it waters down to, to the CEOs I'm trying to reach. It waters down the business case. They wonder if it's a truly legitimate business case. So I try to stress just the business case and numbers. The other reason, and this is frankly more important, we have 19 million people with felony convictions, 77 million people justice impacted. That's a big problem. You can't scale the problem unless it's profitable for businesses to hire from this population. So businesses will write a check for ch to charity but they'll only hire someone who can add value to their enterprise. So I'm all about, let's focus on the business case. Yes, I feel the moral case. If we focus on the business case, I think we'll address the societal issues much more effectively. Absolutely. I want to I return back, if, you, if you'll allow me to, just to talk about the labor force again, because you mentioned that we weren't having as many children as we were 30, 40, 50 years ago, which is part of it. But then there's two or three million people less in the labor force than there has been year over year over where are the workers going is it the baby boomers are retiring what what, what is happening in the it, labor it, it's overwhelmingly the baby boomers retiring and uh they again as i mentioned the pandemic accelerated that so many retired early but now we're starting to catch up to where we would have been anyway uh with all these retirements and you know there are other issues out there uh, certainly i think we can do better with uh getting more women in the labor force. Uh, I'm working on a project right now looking at how Japan, which had this demographic problem well before the U.S., how Japan has solved this. And uh, it's surprising to a lot of people, Japan among, uh, I believe, what are called prime age uh, workers, has a higher level of female labor force participation than either Europe or the United States. Uh, they have done a better job getting older workers back in or staying in the labor force. So there's there's... This is an all-hands-on-deck problem, but the biggest pool, the biggest opportunity is people who've been sidelined because of a criminal record, not just unemployed, but underemployed, not able to participate to their full potential. Yeah, I'd I like to dive in. Can I dive into that just a little bit, Jeffrey? That's um, why you're the moderator. You, you, <laughs> you, you, in your book, um, which is an amazing book, you, you talk to a lot of business owners across the country who are in, engaged in second chance hiring or fair chance hiring. And I'd like to, for you to share with the audience just two questions. It's a two-part question. First, what are some of the barriers that 
people are facing when they exit incarceration or if they've never been incarcerated, but they have that scarlet letter of a conviction history, misdemeanor, felony, what have you. What are those barriers? And then what are you hearing from the employers once they decide to get over the hump of those barriers, right, and implement a program? Um, and what, what kind of response are you hearing from what kind of workers those people are? As you alluded to, the biggest challenges are, are perceptions. And there's always three all the objections fit into three categories. Number one is sort of the safety liability. Am I going to endanger my customers or my employees and have the associated financial liability that would come with that? And, you know, my answer to that is always, you're not hiring all of them, right? You just, you have a process of selection that others have created that works. And frankly, what do we really know about any employee? You know, we, we, we always hear about things that go wrong. Um, and you can also have people who are maybe not dangerous, but are absolutely toxic employees who don't have a criminal record. They're just jerks, right? I mean, yeah, this, this, I this happens. We, I think right? we all know about that. Right. So, so <laughs> um, you know, there's a process for doing this. The other one, and, and this is, uh, was interesting to me, uh, is this perception that people with criminal records can't do quality work. And when done right, the opposite is actually true. Been a number of studies uh, that have been done, and this is consistent with every bit of evidence that has been presented to me anecdotally from these employers. When you hire someone who is ready to turn their life around and wants to prove that they are more than their worst mistake, they're not just an average employee, they're actually an exceptionally engaged and loyal employee. And that high engagement and loyalty, someone who cares about their job and is gonna stay with you is a recipe for productivity, which is a recipe for profitability. And so those are, you know, those are, are uh, really big um, issues uh, to address. And then you get into hard barriers as, as well, licensing barriers in a number of states, for instance, you can't get a barber's license right. if you have a, you know, I, I get if you're Sweeney Todd, right, with the scissors. and But, you know, that's not the, the, the case usually. So you get regulatory barriers. The financial industry is, and, and healthcare faces this. Uh, defense industries face this. There's a lot of barriers that have been put into place that don't have to be there. Um, the business community got used to this wild abundance of labor, when we had the baby boomers in and then the millennial generation came in and how do you sort through resumes? You start putting barriers up, right? Oh, I only want to look at resumes that have a bachelor's degree or higher, even if the job doesn't need it. Um, I don't want to look at anyone who has a gap in employment. So you just took out parents who stayed at home for their children who want to come back in the workforce as well as people who've been incarcerated. Um, all these barriers were, were not necessarily well thought through. And we have to, in the business community, we have to look at this on a really uh, effective basis and say, what barriers are reasonable or have something to do with the job and what are just extraneous and we should, we, we should turn them out. And that often excludes a lot of people with criminal records as well. Absolutely. I, I want to turn just a little bit to the how, right? It's a big question. Um, you know, with the work that Checker does and the reputation Checker has across the country, I get calls from business leaders across the country regularly who want to know how to implement fair chance hiring. I know that in your work and your journey, you talk to a lot of companies who want to implement it too. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how sure. companies can do it and then speak a little bit to the role that community-based organizations play or might play in being able to source talent because it's one of the most difficult pieces to this puzzle is how do we source talent that's ready, workforce ready to walk into the place and, and, and contribute on a, in a meaningful way? The, uh, at, at the heart, it's just a standard talent model. You want to find people who uh, are good fits for your organization and you want to give them the tools to thrive, right? That's a standard talent model. The issue here is how do you identify who's a good fit when all you know about them might be the fact that they have a criminal record? And then the tools that people coming from this background might have, and, and very often it's, it's more related to deep intergenerational poverty than having a criminal record, the tools they need to thrive might be different than CEOs and senior executives like me are used to providing. So community-based organizations play a really critical role here in terms of being able to filter 
from this large population who's going to be a good fit for, for companies. It requires a partnership. Essentially, they become your referral source. And this can be anything from large organizations like Goodwill International to a local church, which, which takes this on. And they essentially have to attest to character because it's very hard. I, I, I believe, and as someone who's managed people over the decades, I believe the most important component of hiring is character. And it may seem strange to think of applying that screen to people with records, but when you understand the barriers that people with records face, the fact that they have overcome those barriers is a really good attestation of character. But you have to understand that those barriers exist. And uh, community-based organizations, re-entry organizations, uh, get the chance to know these individuals as individuals and can say, this person is ready. This person might need to be a fit for this situation, not another situation. And and some of the questions that they will know and they can make a holistic assessment are things that an employer could never ask, particularly in the 45 minute interview. You know, some of the best indicators of whether someone will uh, recidivate, will reoffend are are things like, uh, are you active in a religious organization? Right? You're not going to ask that in a job interview. Sure. Uh, are you married to someone without a criminal record? You know, you're not going to ask that in a business interview. But that can be, uh, these organizations get to do a holistic assessment and can say, this person is ready. Now, for many community-based organizations, this is a different way of doing business. It's really tough to be in social service nonprofits. You are always patching problems, many of which are not solvable. It's really hard work. And there can be, and there have been examples of people who, organizations would send along, not the person who's ready, but the person in greatest need. That's not going to work. Or many of these organizations get their funding based on number of placements, not longevity with the company. So you have to make sure that there's alignment. But that can help you identify the person who's ready, but then the skills they may need to thrive may not be what you're used to or the, or the supports next might be access to housing, access to transportation, coaching, life coaching. Um, and, and all of these things should be viewed by employers as investments in a good employee. Companies make massive investments in talent. They fly to universities. They have internship programs that are profitable, but seek to get, you know, 10% of the interns to come back. Um, McDonald's Corporation relocated its headquarters from an hour plus outside of Chicago into the city, specifically to chase talent that costs $200 million to build their new headquarters. Companies make investments all the time. This is just another investment. Right. Speaking of investments, you and I were talking backstage about J.P. Morgan Chase and other companies who are listening to you and some of the narrative changing things that have been going on in the fair chance space the last couple of years specifically. J.P. Morgan Chase has, this past year hired, has hired 4,300 people with records. 10% of the new hires over the last 12 months have been people with records, which is, you know, admirable. Um, I want to turn to a couple of studies that you reference in your book. That so, so I have to tell you, I, I'm an old Wall Streeter. <laughs> I am programmed to hate my competition. <laughs> But I have to give a nod to J.P. Morgan for the work they have done. Uh, my own employer, we've done, I've personally sponsored a person, but J.P. Morgan has been very public about it. Uh, we train at my employer, we train businesses how to do this right. And so we're all making contributions here, but that kind of leadership is great wherever it's found, even if it's competent, competitive. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeffrey. So I, w- I want to speak a little bit about two organizations, pretty big organizations that you talked about in your book, John Hopkins health system in the U.S. military are two of the few employers who have tracked the performance of fair chance hires. Um, what insights do their experiences provide for those who are looking into it? They're a little nervous about it. They want to know how fair chance hires will perform. What insights were you able to glean? So one of the challenges here is there haven't been that many studies because a lot of companies that are doing this and doing it well don't want to admit to it. Um, and some that are doing it and admit to it then don't want to do the follow-up work because they don't want to treat their employees with records as different from any other employee. You know, so admirable reasons, but at the end of the day, you don't get a lot of data. But there have been uh, some large-scale studies. Uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital System, uh, this was, goes back uh, several decades, started hiring and tracking it. When they uh, had hired 500 individuals, so they, they did a study and they found that, of course, when you hire 500, not all are going to work out. Uh, some sure. 70-odd, I believe, had... Um, 
had uh, left the organization. Importantly, not one of them had been what they termed a problematic termination. And, and the rest were, on average, better employees by any number of, of metrics. The U.S. military is interesting because they also will hire people with felonies, but it requires a waiver. And the military has not um, made public any of this data, but a professor at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst used the Freedom of Information Act to, to pull out all this data. And uh, she found, uh, again, clear evidence that if you have a process for selection, which is the waiver system, and you have a structure in the military, of course, is very structured that supports people, uh, people with records hired through the felony waiver program achieve the rank of non-commissioned officer sooner and at a higher rate than people without felony convictions. Uh, more recently, Toyota uh, did a study with Kelly Services, the, the, the staffing agency. Again, the same thing. Every thoughtful study finds the same thing. I, I think it's important to ask the why. Yeah. You know, oh. um, sometimes we don't dig deep enough into the whys, which, which can give us glimpses into uh, the, the reasoning. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Why are justice-impacted people performing better in study after study after company after company? What is the motivation behind it? What is the impetus behind that? What, what do you think that is? You know, some of it, of course, is they've had to go through so many hoops, so you're getting the cream of the crop, right, which is great. Um, and a great business strategy. But I think fundamentally it's a fact of human nature. I think we can all think of times when we have fallen down and been less than what we aspire to be. And it doesn't have to have anything to do with a criminal record, just things we've done wrong in life. People of character, and that includes lots and lots of people who have records, people with character um, pick themselves up and are doubly determined to prove that they are worth more than their mistakes. And when you have as much interaction as you and I have had people with records who are employed, you see this. Um, a judge in Chicago I was on a panel with said, second chance, fair chance hires will walk through walls for their employers. And I see that every day. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is a key word I like to use in this dignity. Yes. Because most people who've entered the criminal justice system or who've experienced it have suffered from a long period of time of not being able to have dignity, either by the people that were the correctional officers at the system or in the county jails or in their communities even. Um, dignity is a thing that instills and motivates a lot of people. Usually when you love some people up and you hold them and you lift them and you give them opportunities, you get the best out of people. And, you know, the employers that uh, I wrote about in the book and, and all the employers I've met, whether they're in the book or not in the book, who are fair chance employers, um, they're really exceptional leaders, and they, uh, you know, I don't think it's uh, too strong a word to say they love their people. Doesn't mean they can't make tough business decisions, but they really care about their employees, their teammates as individuals. And that is something that so many of us who've had privileged upbringings take for granted, but is not true in, in much of this population. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit to some of your research and the models that you've talked about, um, very interesting models about fair chance hiring. Um, tell me about the true second chance model and what sets it apart from the other two approaches that you talk about in your book. One of the things that I came to realize uh, early on when I beat these employers and study them who are doing this the way we discussed and whose work I highlight in the book, they, they had this great experience and I would share it and audit with, I'd speak to thousands of business owners every year. And, uh, people would come up to me and say, I tried it, it didn't work. Here's what I had. And uh, what I came to realize is the people who have found success from a business perspective are doing it a very specific way, which is you have a partner who helps you find who's ready to be a good fit, and then you have these support mechanisms, whether it's just good partnerships with nonprofits 
or life coaches, or uh, there's a company in Southern California, U.S. Rubber Recycling, that uses a psychologist. I mean, there's all these great models, but the commonality is they do this very intentionally and with the thought of really treating people from this background as true talent and, and giving them those, those opportunities. But there are other models out there. And uh, one of them I highlight in contrast to the true second chance model is uh, what, what I've dubbed the disposable employee model which you see, oh, sometimes in, in fast food restaurants tend to be low-skill, low-wage jobs, and where the employer might be seeking not a long-term relationship, but just a cheap employee. And, and I don't denounce that. It's better than closing the door completely. And people coming out of prison or with a recent felony conviction are often uh, provide their employers uh, with uh, the opportunity to tap the work opportunity tax credit, which defrays some of the wage costs. So while that tax credit pays, it's got a finite life, that's a really inexpensive employee. But there's not a lot of interest in keeping that employee. There's a high turnover. It worked in a, you know, in an abundant labor force. I'm not sure it's going to work now. But if you didn't go looking for quality, you didn't find it. And, and so some businesses had that experience. The other um, uh, model is often well-intentioned companies that um, have an established procedure that do genuinely care about their employees, but don't understand the special um, needs of this population, right? It's so alien to think that someone doesn't know to call in if their car breaks down. But how do we know that, right? How, how do we know that I can't show up at work today or I'm going to be late, I'm supposed to call? Someone taught us that along the way. And so you have this undifferentiated model where they will try to be very good about selective and they will care, but they don't understand all the things that can go wrong. And the barriers for people with records and people in deep poverty, because it's not just about having a record, are, are formidable. Um, even the most basic thing about having to uh, meet with a parole or probation officer and knowing that you need to offer this employee flex time to do that. You don't have to give up the hours. You know, this is not a gift, but you have to make room, room for that. Or there might be uh, restrictions, conditions of parole. I met a CEO of a construction company in Indiana and uh, he was telling me about this great employee he had who had a record. He, he, uh, he, he found this young man who was terrific. He was so terrific that he had an out-of-state job, uh, work job, and he sent this employee, asked, would you be part of the team? The employee, eager to please his employer, said, sure. Turns out the condition of parole did not allow him to leave the state of Indiana, so he was violated and went back to prison because of that. The employer didn't know to ask in advance. There are fines that can follow people around from prior to incarceration, getting a driver's license restored. All of these things are formidable barriers and employers can help and would be willing to help. Um, one, one of my favorite companies is Nehemiah Manufacturing, right? The, the, uh, something like, uh, uh, I'll have to ask the CEO, Dan Myers, forgiveness for getting the numbers wrong, but it's roughly... Um, 170 of its 220 employees are second chance, fair chance, phenomenal, for-profit company. And uh, one of part of their intake process is they ask, do you have any outstanding debts? And if you have debts that are going to get in the way of your being able to function and participate, um, they bring on pro bono lawyers or nonprofit that will help reduce or manage those debts. Um, they have, uh, when I first met Dan, the founder of this company, uh, he, um, uh, he told me, you know, I don't have HR uh, professionals. I have social workers. And I laughed. He said, mm -hmm. no, really, I have social workers instead of HR. And you don't have to do that, but you have to have HR professionals and you have to have uh, supervisors who are sensitive to these to these issues. And and organizations like SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, have been absolute leaders now in focusing on what they call their Getting Talent Back to Work program. So there's a lot of good things going on the horizon, but it still has to come down to a business going about this, going about this in the right way. And being intentional. Being intentional and following this true second chance model. 100%. Thank you for that. We've talked a little bit about some of the positives, um, and I want to pivot to something that I know is probably burning in everybody's mind, and it's something that I get asked a lot. What are some of the mistakes or oversights that employers may make, or how can employers ensure, if they have this fear, safety in their businesses, liability, the thing that you mentioned earlier about 
one of the three problems. How do we make sure that this doesn't go awry or should we even be thinking about that? We have to think about that. And I and I think it's really important not to try to sugarcoat any of this. Not everyone with a criminal record is ready to reenter society and, and be a good employee. And uh, there's a lot of trauma out there. There's a lot of issues out there. And, and, you know, I think there are people who, for whatever reason, will be repeat offenders. But the process is your protection. You're not hiring everyone. You're not hiring randomly. You are going through a well-defined process. And A, that protects you from negligent hiring liability, but it also protects you from something going wrong. Because the vetting that someone with a criminal record gets is a multiple of the traditional vetting process. 100%. Um, and, and honestly, you work for a second chance employer. And, and uh, you know, I, I included Checker and wrote about, uh, I think there's a quote from your CEO, Daniel, yeah. uh, before you and I even met. That's right. What's the experience you have? You're an employer. That's You're an right. executive. Um, we have an amazing experience at, at, at Checker, but we have processes. We've been doing it a while. Um, so we, we have an ecosystem where we cultivate culture we support fair chance talent. We have programs implemented to help train and reskill in some cases. Um, we have a, a fair chance success manager who's kind of like a caseworker to uh, navigate in between management and, and some of the issues that a, a fair chance hire may have. Um, so we've really cultivated a whole company culture where like everyone embraces the fair chance movement, the fair future movement uh, in the and, company. And it works. And, and it, it works. works. And the support works. Um, a question I want to ask and this is a question from the audience that's interesting. How can we as a business community move the needle of second chance hiring, both at the public sector and something we talked about backstage in the financial sector? And what role does policy yeah. play in being able to move the needle there at the federal level or the state level, or even at the local level? Yeah. Um, policy certainly helps, uh, but it still comes down to a CEO or a senior executive saying, let's do this. And not just saying, let's do this, because we've seen pledges and things like that that never really changed um, results. Let's do this. And there has to, it has to be prioritized by the CEO or a senior executive. And there has to be accountability. It can't be um, what happened um, uh, several administrations back was there was a fair chance hiring pledge. Lots of CEOs signed on. The CEO effectively goes back to their head of HR and the head of legal and says, are we fair chance employers? Absolutely. But did they actually hire someone? Usually not. And, and what happens in practice is at some point, whether, uh, say, you're in a ban-the-box state like, like California where you might get an offer made contingent upon a background check, when that background check comes back, someone's got to say yes or no. And that's usually not the CEO who's trying to drive fire chance hiring. It's usually someone in say an HR or legal function who has absolutely no career incentive to ever say yes. They tend to say, well, what's in it for me? And, and fairly. So I always tell CEOs, you have to back your HR and your legal professionals. You have to make it safe for them to say yes. And there's structures that you can do to change that, that I write about in the book, but it's, um, uh, it really has to be led from the top it's going to be implemented by someone else, but it has to start, start with a decision at, at the top. Then with regard to, uh, you know, people talk about government policy. How about government as an employer? Uh, there are a number of examples around the country. Um, I like to hold out the Chicago Transit Authority, the CTA, has a second chance program. And they've hired hundreds of people. It started with sort of lowest level jobs, cleaning the cars overnight, you know, on that third shift. And uh, they realized, oh, there's a lot more talent here. So they have a diesel mechanic training program. You know, these are good jobs uh, that are paying. They do it right. They've partnered with community organizations. I frankly don't understand why every city and major community in the country, uh, why there isn't a government-led program like this. And so it's not just policy. Policy can help, but nothing, no policy gets you to the point that the CEO or the mayor says, let's do this and let's be accountable for it. There are policies and, and I stress that the policies should take into account the employment angle. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say ban the box while well-intentioned has not moved the needle. Uh, but I think, uh, protections for negligent hiring liability fears. So Texas led the way in, in, in much of this. Um, you can hire someone with a record given certain categories. 
and you have no excess liability if something goes wrong. Uh, it's not that these problems happen often. It's that let's take that objection off the table. I'm a big fan of well-executed, well-designed, which is not always the case, right? There's good and bad design of policies, but clean slate legislation, which is automatic expungement for people who have had relatively minor offenses and then many years out, there's been no reoffense, no rearrest. Doesn't really solve the problem for people coming out of prison or recent thing, but at least it's something. And 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 that helps, you know, businesses can't be held liable if they can't see your record, if those records right. are sealed. And sealed appropriate. And this is this isn't compromising public safety. This actually enhances public safety because it uh, means that people don't have to go to alternatives. They can go and become productive members of society. They don't have to consider alternatives which are, are harmful. And I also think it, it helps those of us who wrestle with these justice issues. I'm going to guess that's a large part of our audience and listeners uh, here. Um, we know that the justice system has not has been effectively abusing people. It makes it harder to enforce public order that we need, right, for, for successful cities. And so if we can see a pipeline for people who make mistakes to ultimately, yes, there'll be consequences, there should be consequences, not often in car not nearly as often incarceration, but I think we can do a better job of saying, yes, there's accountability, there are standards. If you violate those standards, there will be a consequence, but then once you've done that, you have a fair shot at, at re-entering society. Um, so I, I think there's so many levels that this is important. It, it's interesting, Jeffrey. I appreciate that uh, input that you just gave. It's interesting. You know, one of the things that I'm asked a lot is how do we convince the unsuspecting or the unknowledgeable business owner? Like, what is what do you think if you were to name one or two key things that can get someone from mildly interested to being that executive sponsor or CEO that says, let's do this, like Daniel, like Stuart Butterfield, like, you know, sure. Jamie Dimon and the people who have taken that initiative. What is, what is that lever? It's, uh, I, I think there's a consistent, what I've seen is a consistent answer. They have to see it in action. And so uh, I, I, one of the companies I devote a chapter to a company called JBM Packaging, fabulous second chance employer. What really transformed their efforts was going to visit Nehemiah Manufacturing 45 minutes away and seeing it work. I'm told Jamie Dimon visited a nonprofit in, in Chicago, the North Lawndale Employment Network. And so, so some of it uh, is just that practical. I think there's a broader question here of societally, how, how do we view people with criminal records? And you know, some of us were raised with this criminals, bad cops, good. And, you know, th th there's nuance to that. And um, uh, to say the least, and when you have interaction with people with criminal records, it's not what you think. And that might mean, uh, you know, visiting prisons. It might mean visiting, per uh, participating in helping nonprofits. Uh, and it might mean visiting employers. And, and I also, I would challenge our cultural institutions, which define these perceptions. You know, you think about those uh, awful sort of cop reality shows, which show people at their worst. Uh, I think there's a change going on, but, you know, it's often Hollywood and, and the cultural community, which creates these perceptions. And that's starting to change. Lynn Nottage, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, did a play uh, that came out uh, last year um, that showed formerly incarcerated people working in a diner and, and really humanize them. There's a wonderful play that I saw the premiere of in Chicago many years ago called Letty by Boo Killebrew, who writes for TV shows and very good playwright that really humanizes this and doesn't, you know, doesn't sugarcoat it. These are reality. I think all of this is part of it. And, and there's a big payoff, not just economically. I mean, my life has been enriched by friendships with people who've led very different paths. And, uh, you know, I'm, I always consider myself the lucky one in this because of friendships I've made, you and some of the other friends you, we have in common. It's enriched my life. Yeah, 100%. Um, you've enriched my life for sure, Jeffrey. And we've all as an industry learned a lot from you. Um, businesses have learned a lot from you. Um, so we appreciate the contribution that you've given to the space because I think your voice was absent, right? That That business voice, that banking voice, that financial voice that... You know, people like familiarity when they 
adopt yeah. new things. They like to be in the bottom of the I, I'm very non-threatening, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm an overweight, <laughs> overweight middle-aged, you know, Ivy League banker, right? Right, so. right, right. Well, well you, mentioned, you mentioned about seeing companies in action, which I think is important because it's part of the storytelling narrative that's so important in this work. Um, another thing that I think is important when I, when I, when you think about some of the CEOs who've decided to implement fair chance hiring, a lot of them went into prison in places like San Quentin or, you know, wherever. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's impactful for an executive to, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the uh, reasons that I've seen the center of the country be so good at this is, um, there has been often the people who have gone into prisons successful business executives gone into prison were going in for prison ministry. So that religiosity had, had played a role, but it doesn't have to be that. It's about seeing people as human beings. You know, first time I visited a prison was in Michigan. I was nervous, right? You don't know what to expect. And then you get to talking to people. And they're just people. And they're people. <laughs> and, and, you know, look, the overwhelming reason people go into prison is not because they're criminal masterminds. It's because they're dumb kids who make yeah. stupid mistakes and don't have guidance and protections in their life. Uh, so, you know, it can spiral into something worse because our prison system uh, in general, there are exceptions, but in general doesn't really promote rehabilitation and reentry. They tend to be places of punishment. You know that well. Um, but by and large, having interaction with people who are different than you and you get to see most people are just people. Yeah. I want, I want to just touch on something you said there about dumb kids being kids. I think I, I read recently that three quarters of the prison system or three quarters of the people who went to prison went there before 26. And it, it's an interesting number because recently a lot of studies have come out to talk about the neuroscience and the brain development of the frontal cortex and, and, and um, how people under 26 are more impulsive than after 26. In fact, California has passed several laws saying that if you committed a crime that sent you to prison prior to 26, you'll be given special consideration for early parole, et cetera, because the brain science supports it. And so I think that's important, too, because when you see people getting out of prison who... And, went and in, I'm not going to shame my 20-something-year-old sons, <laughs> but, but I can attest that, that, that you know, neural development, particularly of men, is, is delayed. Right. And, and 28-year-olds are very different from 22-year-olds. Right. And so that, I think that's an important point because when people are exiting incarceration and they're in their 30s and their 40s, the recidivism rate and their, their impulse yeah. becomes a lot less if they're provided opportunity. Um, so maturity has a lot to do with it as well when it comes well, to that. Well, you know, one of the problems that businesses have had negative experiences because I've, I walk into a business, everyone says, I want a, uh, uh, a low-level uh, drug, of, you know, drug offender. And the reality is low-level drug offenders might be younger and still not matured. They might be people struggling with substance abuse. It's not that you don't hire them, but you shouldn't think that that's the easy way. Um, the, the, the actual science and statistics, the data tell, tell us that um, the best bets are older people who've been away for a long time, which usually means a crime of violence. You don't hire violent people, but people coming out at age 40 for something they did at age 18 might not be the same person and might not even have been a violent person then, just wrong place, wrong time. Well, it, it, it's counterintuitive to what people think about violence because, you know, when you say violent, it, it conjures up these images in yeah. people's minds. And and actually the data shows that people who've committed violent crimes are the least group to recidivate. That's correct. Um, That's and nonviolent crimes, theft crimes, recidivate that right. five times X yeah. than somebody who committed a violent yeah. crime because of what you said, it's usually a crime of passion or a one-off situation. Yeah. Well, with or, or you know, uh, my friend, Jeff Brown, who's now running for mayor of Philadelphia was a phenomenal second chance employer. And he is actually listed supporting returning citizens as part of his goals of being mayor of, you know, one of our largest cities. I mean, phenomenal. And, and I, um, he, uh, he said to me, look, if you are from many of these neighborhoods, your only path out and up that you know of is drug trade. And if you're in business, you protect your inventory. And if you're in the drug business, you protect your inventory with guns. And young men with guns and money at stake is a bad combination and things happen. Um, he, incidentally, I, I should just say, runs a, a chain of supermarkets 
Uh, half of his stores are in what would otherwise be underserved food deserts, but he's made it work. He's a fourth-generation grocer, phenomenal. And he started by challenging his management team. He said, let's hire six people with records because he listened to the communities where he's doing business. And uh, he said, if we can't find six people in the city of Philadelphia who could be good employees, the problem is not the people of Philadelphia. The problem is you, managers. Um, They found six. They're now up to 500 of their 25 Hundred wow. employees or second chance, you know. To, so phenomenal business leadership, and and you know now the potential for phenomenal political leadership in, in a city that uh, um, that needs needs this kind of leadership. Absolutely, I'm, we have to go campaign for him to get. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want I want to revisit something that you talked about earlier. Someone in the audience had a very important question that, that is resonating with me as I'm sitting there talking to you, um, because it's something that I recently ran into at at our company Checker with employees who come in who've spent large amounts of time in prison who suffer sometimes when they get hired from imposter syndrome yeah. or, or or finding a way to integrate into the company culture. So hard. And, and what the audience member asked, which I think is important, is when you talked about coaching and some of the things that need to happen, what are some of the key components, like when you've talked to people like Dan and Nehemiah and other people, what kind of coaching do they offer and what kind of coaching is important for an employer to consider when they take on someone who may have done 10 or 15 years? In- I, I think it's culture. more. It's, it's coaching, yes, but it's really culture, too. A culture of acceptance and being willing to understand that, at least early on as a business, you may not understand all of what's going on. I'll give an example. Uh, there's a, I, I met the CEO of a manufacturer in Illinois. He hired someone, I guess it was a friend of his nephew or something who, who came out of prison. He gave him a chance. He was a great employee, so good that he decided to tap him for one of a group of employees to send to the College of DuPage, a community college, for some additional training. That young man didn't show up at the college and then didn't show up for work. And so he sought him out. He took the extra step instead of saying, okay, no show, no call, no job, which is a standard thing, particularly in manufacturing. He said, I want to find out what happened. So he went, found the young man. The young man said, I never dreamed someone like me could go into a college. I mean, this wasn't a degree program. It was a course. But it was so, he said, I, I, I was too intimidated to go in. And then I was too ashamed that I didn't show I wasn't worthy. And fortunately, this employer, the CEO, you know, basically said, you are worthy. Brought him back into the fold. I'll be partnered with someone to go to the college. But, but it requires that amount of care. It's, it's a tough line to walk, right? Because you, that, that doesn't mean you can excuse bad behavior. But you have to understand why something goes wrong. And think about how hard it is if you've been in prison and you're at the water cooler, right? When we used to go into offices, they were at the water cooler and someone says, oh, so where'd you come from? What a hard question to answer. And so you need a culture of support and you need uh, some sensitized individuals, whether it's HR professionals, uh, life coaches, navigators, you need an instrument for, for helping smooth over those challenges. Absolutely. Uh, we're getting close on time, and I want to wrap up on, on, on a, a point that I'd like to make about the power of possibility and talk about some of the many people. You mentioned that your life has been enriched by formerly incarcerated people or people that you wouldn't have normally run into. And, and I think it's important to understand the power of potential. And when people are given opportunity to succeed, what we do as a community, people who have uh, criminal records, how we succeed. Yeah. And our determination to succeed, you can go from coast to coast. You know, Larry Miller at Nike, who mm-hmm. ran the Jordan brand, president of Portland Trailblazers. Shelly Winner, who's at Microsoft. Sam Lewis, who's yeah. at ARC. Daniel yeah. Dard. Who's a- 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 and Shelly, who was the number one Surface, Microsoft Surface in the, sales in person the country, in, in, the, the world, in the world. In the world. Right? So, and, and had to fight her way in. And, from San Francisco. And, and has been a trailblazer now. Right? So, so I, I also think my hat is constantly going off to the people who've been trailblazers because think of the pressure on them. If it doesn't work out, you know, you, you've per, potentially burned the bridge for everyone behind you. And that's a lot of pressure to put on people, but they take it on. 100%. Daniel Dart, who just oh. got a scholarship to MIT Business School. Like, there, there's countless examples across yeah. the country that when people are put in position and provided the necessary supports, 
they're able to thrive. They're able to present value propositions to their company and to their employers and to their own lives. And it's just amazing to watch some of the transformations that have occurred over the last specifically five to seven years where people have been given space to, uh, and opportunity. So it's just – And they transform their companies too. That's what they do. And that's the really great thing. This uh, JBM packaging I mentioned went from not wanting to do this to it's been so successful – that they set up a paid training program in an Ohio prison. So they have a pipeline of already trained talent coming out. They business, they've had no labor shortage to speak of. So their business has expanded so much. They've opened a second, had to expand their facilities instead of doing it in the semi-rural county seat where they were. They opened in inner city Cincinnati, which is a tough inner city. And they have 20 employees there. Because if you understand how to tap this talent, they're everywhere. And they're particularly in urban areas that we have overlooked in the business community. And we have a very positive return on our investment when we seek out these talent pools and know how to tap them. Well, Jeffy, you've certainly added a lot to this conversation. And, and even though you're a banker, you're a great servant leader. Who, 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 <laughs> oh, lots who, of us are. <laughs> who, who, who I respect and admire. You're a great mentor. Um, I think on behalf of Jeffrey, we both want to thank everyone who joined us here in person and online for this important Commonwealth Club program. And to, again, thank my organization, the Checker Foundation and Checker and Daniel Yanis, who helped sponsor this, as well as the RM Lowe Foundation for its support. This program and others like it will soon be found on Commonwealth Club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Ken Oliver, and this is the Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.